0: Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9 and Hebrews chapter 10 represent the high point of the theology of the articulation of the work of atonement of Jesus Christ, not only in this book, but maybe in the New Testament. It is both literarily and theologically among the most beautiful chapters in the Christian canon. It has sustained weary believers for literally thousands of years. It's where we first learn in full force in this letter the substance and meaning of the word redemption. Uh, Having gone to church since I was very little, uh, you would think that my first reflection on the word redemption came from God's word or from sound sermons, of which I was exposed to many times. Uh, really, my first exposure to that word came from putt putt. Because when I was uh, 10 or 11 years old, uh, mom would grab me and my best friend Scott, who lived across the street, and uh, she would give me $7.50, and then drop us off for the next couple of hours at putt putt, right down the corner from my grandparents. We would play two rounds of golf, uh, and in the middle of a summer afternoon, like on a Tuesday at 2 o'clock, there was nobody else there, and sometimes those games lasted a really long time as we played holes over and over again, and sometimes they went fast, but the real highlight was uh, having dispensed with the $2.50 to play golf, we had $5 left over to go inside and play video games in the arcade, and that was one of the coolest things ever. Uh, We didn't have like a Nintendo or a Sega at home, but we got to go to the Putt-Putt Arcade and play video games. We played all the hot games of the day, uh, and Scott and I got good enough, having frequented Putt-Putt a significant number of times, that we could beat a game called Area 51 on two tokens. That's a game you would think would be about aliens, actually about zombies. That's the first clue there about Area 51. We played video games uh, as long as we could, a couple of hours it seemed like to us, which is uh, forever when you're 10, 11, 12 years old. And uh, every time you did well in the game, it would spit out tickets. Little paper tickets would come out the bottom. And then over in the corner of the room, they had a case, glass case, with a whole bunch of junk in it. And then a couple of uh, really nice items on a shelf that was too high for any human to reach, right? And on the front of the case uh, in, black letters, white background right there, Uh, it said, redeem your tickets here. And so uh, we'd go in and we'd find the, you know, 15-year-old kid who was working in the shack and go, hey, we need you to meet us over at the redemption counter. We would like to redeem our tickets for something really cool. And at the beginning of every summer, we'd start out with the same scheme. We're going to redeem all of our, we're going to save them up all summer long, it's going to take us 48,000 tickets, but we're going to get one of those little handheld TVs, right, and we're going to live out every sixth grader's dream, and like sneak that to school, and watch Boy Meets World while we're in class, that was just what I thought the coolest thing ever was when I was 11 years old, and then uh, by the second week, we'd all have given up, and we spent it all on like uh, rubber balls, and now and laters, and that was our uh, attention span, But that was my first exposure, I think, to thinking about what does the word redemption actually mean? Well, theologically, we get a great definition of redemption here in Hebrews chapter 10. And I want to do something a little bit differently than what we normally do. I want you to go down to point number two in your notes. Every week, I try to include a brief section here that describes the theology of what it is that we're talking about. What does it say about who God is and what God is doing? And so to understand the substance of Hebrews chapter 9, the entirety of which we'll cover at least briefly today, we need to start with the theology first. Redemption, and this is just a good definition for theologically minded people, of which the church is, redemption means deliverance. Deliverance from bondage or legal obligation, especially by payment of a ransom. Ransom. These are all words that you're familiar with. These are words that not only do we read throughout the New Testament, these are words that we sing week in and week out. Deliverance, release from bondage, ransom. In the New Testament, believers are described as those who have been redeemed from two different things. If you don't know these, these are worth writing down, putting these notes together here. Number one, we are described as those who have been redeemed from slavery to sin. Redeemed from slavery to sin. A couple of verses that are helpful here. Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Or Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have Redemption, that is, the forgiveness of sins. Paul, writing to Titus, will say the same thing, starting in verse 11 of chapter 2, "...for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ." who gave himself for us to, what? To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The first substantive definition of redemption in the New Testament is that we have been redeemed or set free, released from the bondage to sin. Secondly, when the New Testament authors speak of redemption, and we find this definition particularly common in Galatians and Romans, both written by Paul. We are talking about release from bondage to the Mosaic Law and all of its obligations. You'll remember the way that the Old Testament law worked. The Jewish people had a covenant given by God, obey me and I'll bless you, disobey me and I will curse you. And it was a burden to the people because every day you had to get up and start all over again. Every action being watched, every decision being questioned, have I done the right thing? Day in and day out, year after year, discovering in the mirror which was the law I can never do enough. I am never enough. I have never done all that is right. And so sacrifices had to be offered. Sacrifices to recognize my sinfulness and sacrifices to make me become ritually pure again. Sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice, my whole life. And it exhausted the people. They were exhausted by their sin, and they were further exhausted by all of these expectations of the law. And so Paul was able to say that one of the incredible things that happens when Jesus comes is that he releases us from bondage, not only to sin, but also from bondage to the law. He says in Galatians 4.4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as God's sons. This is what redemption looks like. It is being set free from sin, and it's being set free from the law because a sacrifice, a payment, a ransom has been paid. And so now we start in Hebrews chapter 9. With that definition in mind, I have been set free by a sacrifice, redemption. Now we're able to take our big idea and merge into Hebrews chapter 9. Jesus' sacrifice redeems his people. Jesus' sacrifice redeems his people, starting in verse 1 of Hebrews 9. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent, he's talking about the tabernacle here and later the temple. For a tent was prepared, and the, and the first section, which w- was where the lamp stand and the table of the bread of presence, is called the holy place. And, and be, beyond that, behind the second curtain was a, a second section called the most holy place, the holy of holies. Having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold and in which was a golden urn holding manna and Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. And some of you are thinking, well, we've already, wait, that wasn't in detail? That seems like a fair amount of detail already. He's describing the temple and the tabernacle. It's the place where all the Jewish people came to worship and had two parts the building did. You had the outer part there. And this is where the priests did all of their work where they would offer sacrifices and gifts to the Lord. And then you had this special section in the back, 30 feet by 30 feet by 30 feet, this incredible space. And this is where the Ark of the Covenant was. And I know that all of you know what the Ark of the Covenant is because you've seen Indiana Jones before, right? And inside the Ark, here were these special things. Now, here's what happened. Here's what uh, worship actually looked like in verse 6. The preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first part, performing their ritual duties. But into the second part, the Holy of Holies, only the high priest goes, and he only goes once a year, and he only goes without uh, first taking precautions of blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. You see, the, the Ark of the Covenant there in the Holy of Holies, this is the throne upon which the glory of God sat. No one was allowed in there. God is holy. You are not holy. That's summarizing... Well, about half of the Old Testament. So even the high priest, the priest of all the priests, could only go in there once a year, and he could only go once in there if after he had offered a sacrifice for his own sins. By this, verse 8, "...the Holy Spirit indicates the way into which the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing." Which is symbolic for this present age According to this arrangement Gifts and sacrifices are offered That cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper But deal only with food and drink And various washings and regulations for the body Imposed until the time of reformation well, What's going on there? What's happening here The first ten verses I, I don't understand Essentially what our author is doing Is he's starting out this chapter On the discussion of sacrifices By saying this This is the way that people use to worship they would go to the temple. They would offer sacrifices. And the sacrifices weren't particularly helpful because the sacrifices only made you ritually clean. They only made you clean on the outside. In fact, if, if you remember, when Jesus gets into with the Pharisees, there's a particular moment when he calls them something devious. And he called them a lot of really terrible things. They had it coming. But in one particular moment in Matthew's Gospel, he calls them whitewashed tombs. That's a really evocative image, isn't it? Right? You'd have a tomb where you would go and bury dead bodies. And and they would take a whitewash paint and, and paint the outside. So from the outside it looked pristine. But what's on the inside? Death. Death is on the inside. And this is the result of following the law meticulously. Here was a group of people who on the outside looked great. But on the inside they were dead. And the law couldn't do anything about what was on the inside. The law couldn't make you alive. The law couldn't deal with your sin. The law couldn't transform your conscience. And so nobody could get into the second part of the tent because the first part was still sin. He says this is an analogy of how we understand the seasons here, right? We are still in the sacrifice-offering time. And because we're in that time, we can't get to the time where we have unfettered access to God. Because the first part of the tent remains, we can't get into the second part. We need somebody to come in and tear down all these curtains and veils. Now what happens here is fortunately it says in verse 10 that there is a time of reformation coming. We know that that time is indicated by the arrival of Jesus Christ who tears the curtains down. No longer will the people of God hide behind the veil in great fear of the holiness of God, knowing that he's holy and they're not. Instead, the Christ will come and transform his people from the inside out and tear the curtain down so that we can stand boldly having been made worthy to be in the presence of the throne of a holy God. Now, how is all that possible, right? I know that's complicated. I know that Hebrews is complicated. It really is. What I'm going to try to do over the next few minutes, and here's really the bulk of what we're going to attempt to do this morning in Hebrews chapter 9, is answer the question as simply as possible, How in the world can we be made holy? How can we be made worthy? If for thousands of years, the refrain from heaven was this, God is holy and you are not. What then does it mean for Jesus to come and say, by me you have been made worthy? How does he redeem his people? What does that redemption look like? Well, we start in verse eleven. Verse eleven, uh, Hebrews chapter nine. And let me just read that first verse. Um, if we're going to pick four words, the the grandest four words of any verse in Scripture, you might think of Genesis one one, right? In the beginning, God. Right? Or or John 3.16. For God so loved. But I'm going to tell you, ranking right there with all of those is Hebrews 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared. But when Christ appeared. This is the hope of every believer I have ever known. There was a time before Christ. There was a time of bondage to sin. There was a time of slavery to the law and all of its stipulations. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of the heifer sanctify through the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And then there's an analogy here for a will doesn't come into effect until someone has died. And the will of God has come into effect by the death of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 21, and in the same way he sprinkled with the blood, this is speaking of Moses, the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. If anyone is struggling to maintain focus this morning, let me read that another time. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and even now, under the new covenant, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves, with better sacrifices than these For Christ has entered, not into the holy places made with human hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, but as it is, he has appeared once for all, at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for a man once to die and after then comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who eagerly wait for him. There are at least five things we learn about the nature of Christ's sacrifice. There are at least five things we learn about the redemptive work of Christ in these verses. They're rich. I read a lot. I know I did. But you can understand how we could spend weeks, years in this chapter. I feel almost embarrassed to say that we are boiling it down in the next few minutes to only these five things. But if we're going to hang our coats anywhere, let it be at least here. Number one, Jesus' sacrifice is eternal. Jesus' sacrifice is eternal. You'll see the blanks there in your notes. Back in verse 12 For he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. A redemption which lasts forever. Recently I read a book by Colson Whitehead called The Underground Railroad, a fascinating novel, Uh, won the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Award, and it pictures the escape of a young slave woman named Cora from a plantation in Georgia on a literal underground network of trains, an underground railroad. And she escapes from Georgia to South Carolina and then North Carolina and Tennessee and on up into the Midwest. And it it describes the brutal realities of the life that she lived in and and the terror that she endured on the plantation. And the villain of that novel is a slave catcher named Ridgway, whose job it is to find all of these runaway slaves and bring them back to their masters. When she absolutely can't endure the plantation anymore, she, she finds a friend and they set off in the night through the swamps, through the darkness... And getting on the train, they arrive at a new state and a new life, new identities and a new hope. But well, there's Ridgway right behind her. And so she moves on again having nearly been caught to another state and another and another and another. And, and that killer, that maniacal fiend follows her all the rest of the days of her life. Never a night Does she go to sleep knowing for sure that she can close her eyes in peace because she is always tormented at the prospect that she'll be caught and returned to a brutal master? This is not the kind of redemption given to us by Jesus Christ. Once you are free, you are free forever. Once you have been redeemed, let loose from your natural obligation to sin, you are free forever. Once you have been set loose from all of the requirements of the Mosaic Law, you can rest easy every night for the rest of your life knowing that you have been set free forever. There is no going back. There is no power in the universe that can grab you by the chains and drag you back to the life that you had before. There is no one so strong. There is no one so wise. There is no one so willful to override the power of a sovereign God who, by the blood of Jesus Christ, has set you free. Your redemption is eternal. It's eternal today, and it's eternal tomorrow and it's eternal into the age in which you get a new body and worship him forever. No one and nothing can draw you out of the redemption secured by the blood of Jesus Christ. Secondly, Jesus' sacrifice is effectual. It actually works. He says in verses 13 and 14 that if the blood of goats and bulls could actually sanctify someone how much more does the blood of jesus christ cleanse our conscience again i remember being uh seven or eight years old we were a little christian school and one day uh, mom and pop had to work late and i went home with some friends to their house after school until they come pick me up and uh, they had three brothers one was my age one was older one was younger. And they had a Sega Genesis. And this was the coolest thing on the planet because they had uh, ToeJam & Earl, right? Which is like the dumbest sounding video game, but I played a lot of hours of this over at my friend's house. His older brother didn't care, but his little brother couldn't stand it. Absolutely just furious every time because there are only two controllers. And so a little guy, I mean, three or four years old, the mom would come in and hand him this little device, and, oh, here you go, now you can play too. And I leaned over him and said, I don't understand. I know what your controller looks like, and mine looks just like that, but his doesn't look anything like this. And he goes, oh, it's not a controller, it's a calculator. <laughs> but he doesn't know the difference. It doesn't do anything. He just sits in front of the TV and pushes all the buttons and screams at us, but he thinks that he's playing. It is not effectual. It's not moving any characters. It's not progressing the game. We're not achieving any goals here. He's just pushing the buttons. And in the same way, the Mosaic Law was just a bunch of people sitting around in a sense pushing all of the buttons. It did not make you clean. It did not make you holy. It did not change you. It didn't impart purity to your conscience. It couldn't do any of those things. It was never designed to. But Jesus Christ offers a sacrifice. His blood is effectual. That means it actually changes who the believer is. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. The blood of Christ makes you alive. You were a slave to sin. Jesus frees you from that and allows you to pursue righteousness. You were unholy, and the blood of Jesus Christ justifies you. It declares you righteous so that you can stand before a holy God. You chose the wrong things, but the blood of Jesus Christ sanctifies you day by day, transforming you into his likeness and his image. It's effectual. It changes things. Jesus' sacrifice is eternal. It's effectual. Thirdly, Jesus' sacrifice is bloody. Jesus' sacrifice is bloody. We don't talk about a bloody gospel much anymore. It's become in certain circles terribly unfashionable to talk about the blood sacrifice that was necessary for the redemption of our sins. So when he says in verse 20, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded you, he's not just speaking of the blood that was necessary to be offered for the Mosaic law and sacrifice after sacrifice. He's speaking of the blood that was offered, necessary under the new covenant. And in fact, it's the same thing that we say when we take communion. Quoting Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, for this is the new covenant in my, what? Blood, Blood. in my Blood and we used to sing some of these great hymns, right? There's power in the blood, wonder-working power in the blood. We will never, never be ashamed to sing what is disorienting to an unwise world. That is, this book is a tremendously bloody book. The gospel is a bloody gospel our Savior is a bloody Savior who by his blood achieves redemption for a sinful people. Uh, I can't remember if it was high school or college, uh, but the church that I grew up in, big church, seven or eight hundred people, uh, was in a neighborhood, um, more urban neighborhood, struggled a lot to get people from the neighborhood to come and visit our church. And uh, one week, uh, a lady who had never been to church a day in her life uh, showed up, and she brought her children. Um, they came to Sunday school, and, and she was already put off a little bit by how Sunday school is over an hour long, the service is going on, and we got about two-thirds of the way through the service, and our pastor, who was um, one of the humblest men and, and a, an incredible preacher, I've learned a lot. I, I wish I had imitated more started to lead us all in communion. Now, this is a Baptist church. We have a memorial view of what it is that we do there. That is, we understand that these are not actually the body and blood of Jesus Christ when we take communion, but they are symbolic of his body and blood and helps us remember what it is that Jesus has done on our behalf. But he didn't go through the whole explanation of Uh, the remembrance view or how the Lutherans view this as consubstantiation or how the Catholics do uh, because almost everybody in the room had taken communion dozens if not hundreds of times before he just launched right into it the body and blood of Christ shed for our sins and so the host was passed around and the little cups of juice were passed around and this lady (laughs) freaked out (laughs) ran out of the room found a telephone, and called nine one one. Hey, you won't believe what's going on here. These people are drinking blood in the big room. They call it a sanctuary. How weird is that? And the police officer said, uh, I'm going to understand that you're probably not a church-going woman. Are <laughs> you be familiar with what's going on there? She goes, no, it's, it's little bits of flesh and blood and the officer came out and I remember the conversation I overheard this as was one of the greatest lessons my pastor ever taught me in all the years of my youth an older gentleman in our congregation who was just kind of angry about everything walked up to Eric and he said you know uh, maybe we should lay off this whole talk about blood so much and without missing a beat Eric said if we don't talk about the blood then I don't have much to say at all we have to talk about the blood there is power in the blood power to redeem the people of God thirdly, fourthly Jesus' sacrifice is vicarious it's vicarious it's substitutionary those are big words um, vicarious means when someone else does something we enjoy the benefits, we live through the benefits and the pleasures of what they're going through uh, we have friends this morning I saw on Facebook uh, their son just turned 11 years old they took the whole family, put him on a plane, they're headed to Disney World right? And I can tell you, honestly, I feel no jealousy whatsoever. I am vicariously living through every picture that they post. I'm enjoying the whole thing. I am not there. They are there. But my joy comes through them being there. It's vicarious. When we say that Jesus has acted on our behalf as a substitute, what we're saying is that all of our sins were laid on him and all of his righteousness was imputed to us. It is a substitutionary atonement. Take a look again at verses 23 and 24. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. (coughs) Excuse me. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with human hands, which are copies of these true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. The work that Jesus does to pay a payment for sins and to represent us before a righteous God is done on our behalf. When Jesus dies on the cross he does not die for his own sins. He is a Sacrifice without blemish, the author of Hebrews tells us. He's not paying for his own trespasses. There was none. He lived in full fidelity to the law. When he is dying on the cross, he is not dying for the things that he has done contrary to the will of God. He is dying for our sins. He gets our penalty. He suffers the wrath that was due to us. And instead, we get the hope and the peace and the joy that was rightfully his. This is something we sing a lot. And what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you for the next couple of months and the next few weeks, I should say, as we lead up to Easter. I think we're only about six weeks or so (laughs) away from Easter. I want you to think about the songs that we sing. And I'm going to quote some songs here that I know that we'll sing over the next six or seven weeks. Songs that talk about the vicarious nature of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the substitutionary atonement. That when Jesus offers himself as a sacrifice, he offers himself as a sacrifice on our behalf, as the author of Hebrews says. So last week we sang how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure that he should give his only Son to make a wretch's treasure. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call on among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. One of my favorite hymns to sing during the Easter season, beneath the cross of Jesus, I fain would take my stand. The shadow of a mighty rock within a weary land, a home within the wilderness, a rest upon the way for the burning of the noontide heat. the burden of the day, it's the second stanza that levels me. Upon that cross of Jesus, mine eyes at times can see the very dying form of one who suffered there for me. And from my smitten heart with tears two wonders I confess the wonder of his glorious love and my unworthiness. I take, O cross, thy shadow from my abiding place I ask no other sunshine than the sunshine of his face, content to let the world go by, to know no pain nor loss. My sinful self, my only shame, my glory all the cross. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die. Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Was it for crimes that I had done, he groaned upon the tree, Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Well, might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ, the mighty maker, died for man, his creature's sin. Was it for crimes that I had done? Yes. reflect on this in First Peter chapter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and to live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. Jesus' sacrifice is eternal, it's effectual, it's bloody, it's vicarious. and finally it's definitive. It's definitive. Room, I just right there. It's it's enough. It's enough. Verse twenty-five. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly. But as it is, he appeared once for all. That phrase occurs at least twice there. Nine, I think it occurs twice more in ten. Once for all. He he, he came one time. Once was enough. There was no need for sacrifices to be offered again and again and again and again. Jesus' blood actually changes the believer from the inside out the very first time. fact this is why Jesus came you read uh, I think it's Matthew chapter 20 Mark chapter 10 verse 10 Jesus came not to be served but to serve and to what to offer his life for the salvation of many why does Jesus come Why does Jesus live? Why does Jesus teach and endure the cross and die and allow himself to be buried in a tomb? Why does he rise again? For the ransom and redemption of many. One time, it's enough. What do you do with a passage like that? I can think of at least one one way to take it home. And the passage that first comes to mind is Romans chapter 7. Have you ever read Romans chapter 7? Romans we think of as a deeply theological book, and it is. It's an intense course book on the nature of justification and sanctification. This incredible magnum opus of Paul on the doctrine of salvation. But right there in the middle of the book, in chapter 7, Paul writes about his personal frustration. I I do the things that I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I know that I ought to do, and I am absolutely rocked to my fundamental core at how far I am away from the image of Jesus Christ. I got to tell you, I have been there, and every mature believer I know at some point has been there, I know that I am redeemed, but I am mortified by my own sin. And I have laid in bed at night, staring up at the ceiling, wondering, was it really enough? Is my sin too great? Is there mercy for someone like me? how Paul follows up this protracted self-reflection in chapter 7 with chapter 8. That's how he starts the very, next, the very next chapter. If there was any confusion, if there was any doubt, if there was any uncertainty about the nature of Christ's redeeming work, know this. There is therefore now no condemnation For those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Not a hint, not a moment. No fear of the magnitude of my sin. no hesitation to say that I belong with our Holy Father. Not because I'm worthy, but because the sacrifice of Jesus' own blood is more than enough. Father, I pray that you would guide us into understanding and into obedience Help us to worship as a people confident in their freedom. In Jesus' name, amen. You'll see, um, we should have sang, Oh Church, Arise, that's what we had scheduled. And I asked Jason if we could take another shot at His mercy is more. Uh, Taking maybe a slower moment to reflect on what we're actually singing what love could remember no wrongs we have done, omniscient, all-knowing, and yet, because of the atoning work of Jesus Christ, he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins there are many, his mercy is more. Third stanza, what riches of kindness he loved la- His blood was the payment, his life was the cause. We stood beneath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more.